OMG. It's June 26th. Guess what? It's the day before my birthday, so it's really, really important. But not only is it the day before my birthday, it's the first night of the Fall Collective. Yes, you heard that right. We start tonight. So if you have not signed up, there is still time. Or if you want to drop in, that's available too over on our site. So you can find out what we are all about in our class one of I've signed up for the test. Now, WTF, do I do? We've got you. Head over to www.studynotesaba.com and we'll see you tonight, 6.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. So be there or miss the F.O. Study Notes ABA. ABA and a little X-rated away. It's behavior, bitches. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey, and we are here with episode 142. Do you have any idea what your rhyme is going to be today? I feel like I don't see anything in the outline. Because I like to surprise you. Okay. Yeah. What is it? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Episode 142. Let's make risk benefit analysis work for you. Meow. Boom, boom, boom. (laughs) Pew, pew, pew. Pew, pew. Yeah. I like to give a little insight into what we might be like talking about today with the rhyme um, I yeah think we sets might the tone. we might not we might <laughs> make the purpose of the episode because the rhymes before were literally had nothing now i want them to be purposeful at episode 142 i think it's okay. a good time to start no time like so. the now i know all right so cool so can i read my review i'm really excited about it it must be about you let's hear it's not surprisingly (laughs) shocker it's exciting to me because we do some episodes sometimes that i don't know how they're gonna hit and liat's super into them and i think they're a little crazy but we got a review recently about one of them that i felt this way and so let's read it sean savior he gave us a five stars and it was titled halfway to halloween which when i did the math today i mean it's about five and a half months to halloween so he left it on 418. Hey, Liat and Casey, I hope you see my review. I had a unique way of becoming a regular listener of yours. On Halloween last year, you guys interviewed someone who had been to a lot of extreme haunts. I ended up going to the same most extreme haunt that Ron went to and beforehand came across your podcast in my hunt for all things extreme horror related. I listened to that episode obsessively leading up to my own first time experience going to one of those haunts. But I stuck around, listening to another episode and another and another. You guys have found a magic way of making your podcast accessible to and interesting to anyone, even a horror-loving, non-BCBA dude like me. Much love. And All that, right, I, for me, is the purpose of the podcast. It isn't yes. just for BCBAs. It isn't just for women or bitches or whatever you think of when you think of our podcast. It really, I loved it. I mean, even the fact that, like, that is showing true dissemination because this person even responded, even a horror-loving non-BCBA, meaning like he knows what a BCBA is now, which is pretty cool, you know? Totally. Because yeah, most it, people you meet have no effing idea what a BCBA is. And to find it through searching for extreme haunts, like we pop up, that's also, I mean, that's some good SEO. And first of all, you're welcome. I told you it'd be a cool episode. I know. I know. You're you're always right. You're always right. So anyways, today I'm super pumped to talk to someone who is everyone's crush. Everyone's crush. Um, I've already texted a couple people today, like, guess who I'm having on? And they're like, oh, my God, it's definitely making me blush up here. Yes. Literally, you Um, have students who are like, 
like, mm-hmm. wait, Shane Spiker? I'm like, yeah, no, he's a really cool dude. They're like, you know, I took any class I could take at FIT because like, <laughs> if he'd be teaching it, I would automatically sign up whether I like needed the topic or not. I'm like, you got I mean, hopefully that. Hopefully that means I'm an effective teacher. <laughs> I think yeah, that's I my mean, thought on it. You know, no, the, no, people love listening to you speak. Mm-hmm. And I was just at um, a Weba workshop in Boston, and there was um, shout out to Wade, the Behavior Live um, guy behind the scenes, and um, a bunch of the girls were like, "Oh my god!" Like giggling, like he looks just like Shane Spiker. <laughs> 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 I mean, it was really just the beard and the um, hair, but yeah. Anyways, so we're ha- we're happy to have Shane back. We have had him on before. Um, he wrote a book that I last summer actually it was I think I know it was in the summer because I was in my kayak reading it. It was called Anxiety Report, and um, I absolutely loved it. So that was I think the last time we had you on. Yeah, Probably that was yet. a while ago. Um, that was so. That was about two years ago. That was right after we had done um, the episode with Hannah Jurgens um, mm-hmm. on the RBT uh, relief fund that we were trying to do. So, um, so wow. that was so it was that, and then the anxiety report book, and then I'm back, so I get to be a recurring guest here. It's it's wonderful. It's so exciting, and I can't believe it was that long ago. Wow, I, time has. I gone. know. Even you just saying like the the RBT relief thing, and I'm like, you just don't realize that like. COVID happened. <laughs> yeah. And like it's been years since then. You know, like you kind of are like, oh yeah, I remember COVID started. And it's like, oh, it's like, but like we have a vaccine since then. Like it's it's kind of wild. We came out of it. Yeah, we came out of it. It's one of those things I always like. I talked to my I have a teenage daughter, so I have to explain like random timelines to her. And I was like, my life exists in like these weird timelines where it's like before the internet and then after the internet. <laughs> and there's also before 9-11 and after 9-11. And now she's got before COVID and after COVID. And like these war like just like everything, just these rapid shifts are it's really kind of wild when you think about it. <laughs> like, no yeah. wonder, no wonder we all have anxiety legit um. now, that meme i sent you the other day casey on instagram the meme it said um what did it say it said you t- I, it, was, it was about it was reading basically describing me it was about like i think um you know back in you know when they read aloud and they would like make you read aloud in elementary school and you would know like you were like the fourth paragraph and it was like that's where my anxiety started <laughs> and i'm mm-hmm. like yes like, yep. like practicing <laughs> for that fourth paragraph. Rehearsing, preparing before it even came to me. Um, but yeah. And then the real anxiety started with popcorn. When it was like Why? popcorn, no planning. Oh, God, the game. Popcorn. <laughs> Makes me literally I love that shit. It was like, <laughs> call no, me, call me. me. But anyway, Shane, let's chat. I have kind of a couple different ways and topics that I have questions for you on. But I want to dig first into your book, your newest one, the workbook, um, the risk yeah. benefit analysis. I want to know kind of what inspired you, who's it for, and a little bit on how to, I've been going through it, and I think it's awesome. So, oh, cool, thank you. Yeah, we. Um, so I, uh, my experience, and I think we talked about this a little bit um, when we've talked about self care and stuff. Uh, my my experience, my clinical experience has come from a place where uh, I work with a lot of people who are really severe and really have like really dangerous, challenging behavior. And so um, I had learned how to do risk benefit analyses really early in my career. And like, 
almost to a point where I can kind of run through it in my head. I'm like, okay, we can do this. Da, 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 da. Okay, boom, done. And then have it and ready to go. And so as I was thinking about that and, and starting to supervise people and starting to train people up, I was finding that people had not really known what the steps were to doing any sort of risk benefit analysis, let alone a comprehensive one. And what I was finding too, was that people were kind of always going back to familiar interventions. They were kind of like, oh, well, I'll do this because I know this and not really looking at, I'll do this because I have weighed the risks and benefits and understand how this is going to impact this person on, uh, you know, on a micro and macro level and the people around them. And so I was starting with kind of doing some trainings around that and developing some tools around that. But it really came down to, I think people just need like a step-by-step walkthrough on how to actually do this because I was finding that even giving people like a rapid risk benefit analysis and being able to do like a quick checklist, even that was kind of tripping people up. So that's, yeah. that's kind of where it started. And I was just finding really that people were just not doing them or didn't know how to do them or didn't know how to critically analyze decisions they were making in those really dangerous spaces. So that's kind of where it started. Well, you know, I remember studying for the exam. It was like, like, you know, you're studying your different ethics part of the exam, you know, and it's not as, and it's like one of the things, make sure you do a risk benefit analysis. I literally think that was the extent of Mm-hmm. <laughs> anything written about a risk benefit <laughs> analysis. It wasn't like what it is. So I just kind of assumed like, okay, figure out like what's good about it. What's bad about it. Which one's worse. You know, like. Sure. And dissecting English language. Yeah. yeah but there, there was never like anything like, okay, cool. So I, I like, is there a formal process for this? Like, what does that mean? What does a risk benefit analysis look like? When would I conduct this? You know, and for you to put that into writing, it's like, I feel like in some ways our field is so young <laughs> mm-hmm. totally. that like there's so as like, you know, our science is supposed to be so technological, but like at the same time, so much stuff is unsaid because it's so new, like not everyone sure. could do everything. So like, I feel like this is a huge thing that you've put out there for people to be able to refer to. Yeah. So I think, I think the biggest thing for me was just that, again, going back to the idea that behavior analysis is not typical, not necessarily inventing anything new, especially when it comes to risk benefit analyses. This is not something new, but having kind of something manualized and formalized in a decision-making model, I think is just going to be helpful for people to understand. I mean, you're not going to need it forever and that's not the goal. Like you don't need this thing forever, but until you're fluent in it, you need kind of like a structure and framework and almost like a kind of like a worksheet or something like that. So that, that was kind of my original idea around that, um, putting all that together. You're naturally doing this in your head, right? As yeah, oh, yeah. I, well, because I have you have to when you're working in crisis, like you don't have time to kind of weigh risks and benefits in the moment. Sometimes you kind of have to go like, oh, I got to I got to like rapidly go through this. It's kind of like um, there's there's this like group of characters in Dune called Mentats and they're like human computers. And that the idea is like they can process data really rapidly and make decisions really rapidly with all the information. And I've kind of I feel like I'm like a Mentat. When it comes you're, to stuff you're like a total that, so. mentat. I can see that. <laughs> I aspire to be a mentat one day. Yeah, it's exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I mean, I have worked with severely, um, you know, challenging behavior with adults and the community. And I remember my first role as an RBT. We were in a like a grocery store, and um, I thought I had it right. I was like, this client and I have paired so well. He loves me. He is going like, I know if I just get to the candy aisle and, you know, he, and he gets what he wants and he's done it, you know, we're just going to get through it. 
And I ended up having to call the police and it was like super self-injurious. Um, and I was, I, I froze. I was just like, there was nothing in the moment I could even process to, you know, calm him down. I couldn't physically do it. I couldn't verbally do it. I, you know, I tried, you know, getting him out to the car and putting it and like getting him into the car, but the self-injurious behavior was happening so hard. And like, it was just one of the, like, definitely a traumatic experience for both of us. Um, yeah. Cause I thought we had built that rapport enough that I felt, you know, I could turn the behavior on and off. Right. We'd done the FA and I was like, I know what the function is access to candy. Like, yeah, that's going <laughs> to work. No, it did not work. So. Right. And I think, I think in that situation, you know um, what I have learned over the years is that in those moments I tend to, I know that I don't freeze. I will, I, I immediately like stop, and get, I, I don't think I'm ever as calm <laughs> as, as when I am like in that space, being able to like make decisions in a rapid way to make decisions that are going to be like the safety of that person more than anything else and the safety of those around the person. And I think it, it's something that I didn't, I never expected to do I, or be good at, um, you know, and I'm not saying I'm the greatest at it, but I definitely feel like that's a skill set of mine. Whereas like, you know, going into school, I was going to be a marine biologist. So I never, this was not a career path for me. And then ending up in that space and being actually really good in the face of crisis was, was a, a shock to me. So, um, but yeah, not everybody's got that. And that comes with experience and fluency and all of those things. And, you know, honestly, in the, in the context of crisis, sure, risk benefit analysis is helpful, but that's not necessarily the only use for it. You know, when somebody is trying to make a decision about a treatment change, then we should be doing these and considering the risks and benefits of why we're doing functional communication versus um, something else or why we're going to start including this other supplemental therapy for this person and what the risks and benefits are to our own treatment and stuff like that. I mean, it, it can be applied in any of these spaces. And I, I think that that's a, that's a, a common misconception of it as people think, oh, crisis, risk right. benefit. It's like, no, nope, it's actually you can use it anywhere for any decision you have to make. Because, I mean, I always heard of it more like in the business world in general, being like, hmm, this big co this big company is looking to acquire this other one. What's a risk associated with it? You know, like, uh, it could sure. ruin our, you know, this or the benefits or so looking at it in this sense is really cool. But I, by the way, guys, anyone listening, you know, we do not give our guests like a lot of like, hey, this is the exact questions we're going to be asking you. So we kind of <laughs> ask them on the spot. Like someone the other day was like, hey, will you give me a list of questions you're going to ask me? I'm like, I have no fucking idea what I'm going to ask you in two months. <laughs> I don't know what my brain's going to want to know by then. <laughs> but, okay. So you could tell me no if it doesn't work on the spot. But like, can you give me an example of like something recently that like you did a like walking through like a risk benefit analysis, obviously not disclosing any names or sure. that sense. Yeah, I think I think uh, there's there's a couple that come to mind. Um, we the the one I, I I was working with a learner who has some pretty significant um, uh, some challenging behavior and has some kind of uh, some mental health diagnoses going on alongside that. And so a lot of our decision making around working with this learner is at what point in time do we have to look at um, you know, inpatient treatment. And so some decisions that we we have to make is, you know, to what degree, what level does this rise to a safety issue? You know, how long does this person go with this particular behavior or the set of behaviors? And so we kind of have to always make, like have it in the back of our heads, like, you know, where's the line that we cross that has to involve 
uh, an involuntary hospitalization or something that is going to require a higher level of care than what we're providing in the in the community setting. And so this this particular learner that we work with um, is currently being evaluated through some local behavioral hospital facilities because they were they, they, their behaviors have gotten such at such high rates and such high intensity that we were kind of like the risk of keeping them in home right now without an assessment, without further evaluation, without some other things going on was just too great to keep them there. So we had to make a decision, which was a tough decision for uh, the parents involved. And so so we had to kind of like lay all that out and actually do the risk benefit analysis to say like, oh, the risk of this is here, da, 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 da. here are the things that could come out. Here's the things that could, imp this can impact your other children. This can impact this situation, or we can do this and maybe get some answers. It's not an ideal situation. It's a temporary situation, but at the, at the very least we can kind of stabilize the situation and see if we can't move forward. And so, so having, I've had to have those discussions a lot where we talk about things like an involuntary hospitalization or inpatient services. We talk about fading services. We talk about a medication review. We talk about those types of things. It's like, what decision are we looking at and what are the ramifications of that specific decision? That, that one is a, is like a, something that came up just like last week. So we're, I mean, we're still doing this every week with some of the learners I work with. Oh my gosh. God. Did you hear the rumor? Oh, Liad here, by the way just wanted to let you know that we have the most badass CEUs on our site. Have you checked them out lately? We're always adding new CEUs with amazing teachers into our library of content. You can take them live, you can take them recorded, but where else would you want to go than Snava to get all your CEU requirements met? All you need to do is go over to our website, www.studynotesaba.com and check them out. We won't let you down. I mean, have we ever? I think it's also important because, you know, there's so much as behavior analysts, we're like, we could do anything, you know, like behavior analysis, like we could change any behavior. But there's also like has to be like that also like humble aspect of like, okay, but let's look at the risk if like we continue to try be the one here to like deal with everything, you know, because a part of it is, you want to be able to have a solution, but you know, sometimes being like, maybe this person needs to be involved first, just due to the risk factor, you know, sure. or like getting them assessed, like evaluated, you know, maybe medication involved or something. And I, I think just what I've seen across medical fields in general, even like myself, like being in with doctors with my health condition, sometimes you know, I, I know even when I've been in like crisis with like, let's say my fingers coming off or something when they were freezing and they're like, well, what do we do? Do we give her this procedure or do we, I mean, it might, you know, she might lose the rest of her fingers, but it might also save then like, you know, blood to her heart or whatever it is. And like, they're thinking of these things. And I remember like specifically one doctor was like, you know what, I'm going to pass this on to this doctor. And it was like, I, I was so impressed at the time because before this, I had seen like every doctor be like, no, 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 this is my case, you know? Yeah. And like them like actually looking at those, but this is when I went to an academic hospital after when they were like, okay, that th this is like beyond me. And it's, it's just like such an important skill to be able to do when making any decision really. You, you're absolutely right. And I think 
this is, I think to go back to what you said earlier, the field is so new. I think that there is like this, almost this level of expectation that like, not only is the field new, but everybody who's getting certified is expected to know everything. And this is one of those things that when you do this and you do this well, you can go, Oh, I actually don't know what to do here. And that's totally okay. And, and having kind of like being able to pull in other practitioners or be able to kind of not necessarily pass the buck, because I think, I think most people get into the field to kind of go, I want to help, but being able to kind of like critically analyze all the variables that are going on and say, you know what, we need more help, I think is one of the most vulnerable and important things that we can do. And, and, and you're absolutely right. Like, you know, the field is new. The field is growing. The field is green. I mean, more, what is it? More than 50% of the field has been certified for less than five years, something like that. And, and it, which is wild. And when you think about that, that's a whole lot of people who are coming in, who are working with peers, who are probably expecting to know all the things they're expecting to know all the things. And nobody's going, you know what? I just don't know. And, and that skill of saying, I don't know, I think is critical, but sometimes you need a little bit of help and like frameworks like this go, okay, well, I don't know this, or I don't have an answer for this. Or if I select this action, then I'm putting everybody at risk and I should probably reevaluate my life or this specific decision, you know, <laughs> reevaluate my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like what you said in the, you know, I was kind of asking you who this is for, how to use it. But one of the things that you say in the book in the beginning is you're using this to practice, 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 like replication, replication. And I think that being able to use this before you get into the real life situations um, by, you know, creating, you know, breaking down and using the blank pages or the, you know, setup framework pages um, with the questions you ask would definitely for me, if I had this when I was a new BCVA and I could, you know, sit and, you know, go through this and practice and practice and practice, I would feel much more prepared when it came to doing a real risk benefit analysis with a client and a family. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think honestly, I, that, and that's what it comes down to for me is like you, you, in order to get fluent in it, you have to practice obviously, but sometimes what is really helpful is having that framework to know how to write this up so that it becomes like a legal document too. Um, there have been times where I've worked with families that are in situations that are, I mean, the significant life health threats, I mean, so, like to the risk of like somebody is going to die if this continues the way this is going. And so we were able to use risk benefit analysis to be like, hey, look, we weighed all these options. We spelled all this out. And here's why we're deciding to make this decision. And here's why our recommendation is this. And, uh, you know, there's been, I've done that several times and families have been like, OK, you're fired. And I'm like, oh, cool. OK. But at the very least, I've done all the things where I've said, you know, like this is why we can't continue forward. Oh, like you have. Like, like your, your learner, your child, your, the person that you're serving is living in an area where they have run off and they have eloped and they got shot at. So I, I this is a behavior that's happening seven, eight, nine, ten 10 times a day in a, a per week, you know, every day per week, we're talking about a significant risk. And so we either need to do a or B, but we can't continue this route. We can't continue this path because what we're doing right now is too risky. And, uh, and I've done that. I've done two risk benefit analyses where I'm like, we could do this and here are the risks. Like we do this, here are the risks. And in that, and then in those situations, I've had people be like, no, okay, we're going to go somewhere else. I'm like, okay, well, Here's your, your termination letter. Here's the, here's the 30 day. Here's all the stuff. Here's everything that you need. So that's in your, in your file in case something goes wrong. You know, it's unfortunate, but sometimes you have to lay it out for folks. And sometimes the, it goes the other way. I've laid it out for folks and they're like, wow, I never really thought about it like that. Let's go ahead and go this route. And I'm like, great, let's go. Um, it's usually, it's never me going, we're going to make this decision. I just kind of lay it out. I'm like, Hey, what do you think about this? Here's all the variables that you need to know about it. 
when you talk about this, you're really talking about our ethical duty to our clients, right? It is clients' rights and, you know, acting in the best interest of the client needs to be at the forefront of every single thing we do. Probably, um, you know, ethics code two, it's huge on all of this stuff that I was actually reading through the new ethics book today. And I was in the ethics code two today. um, And I was like, this is like all the shit in Shane's book is coming from this code. (laughs) It really is. And it is something that you are ethically, you know, bound to be doing for your client to make the best decisions for them and for their families. Yeah. Well, I think with them too. So I yeah. think, I think it's really important, like for me to do all this and go, I, I spell us out and I give them information as like part of an informed consent process. Like I'm like, Hey, here's, here's where this can go. What do you think? You know, I'm, and you know, and if it's something that is like, it's really dire, that's like, here are my clinical recommendations. That's a different conversation. But if it's something that's like, you know, we have to make a decision about this and here's kind of what has been laid out in front of us. Here's the risk benefit of both of these things. What do you think, mom, dad, parent, caregiver, whoever you are, um, client who is involved in this? I mean, I've done I've done risk benefit analyses with clients that I work with specifically and got them involved in those decisions because at the end of the day, it's just me weighing options. It's not me making a decision at the end of this. It's me weighing the options and presenting those options to a person so they can make an informed decision. I mean, it's like the very, to me, it's the very definition of like informed consent. It has, it's, it's hopefully leads to effectiveness and caregiver buy-in and client buy-in and all of those things. I want it to lead to that, you know, uh, because I'm not going to just come in and be like, well, this is what you got to do. I'm the behavior analyst. You listen to me. I mean, we, we see how that has worked for our entire field. So, um, you know, I think, I think that's where I kind of go back to is like, at the end of the day, it's an information process, like processing kind of paradigm that we can present to somebody and be like, look, here is all the things, or at least the things that I could think of other thoughts, other concerns, where do you want to go from here? And, um, and I think it gives people an opportunity to be really collaborative when maybe they weren't prepared to be collaborative to begin with. You're making them part of the process. And that's exactly what we need to be doing with everything, not just risk, risk benefit analyses. We need to be doing it with yeah. assessments, behavior change interventions, <laughs> absolutely every single thing. Um, if we're not doing that, we again are not being ethical. We need to be yeah. able to include them through the entire process so they trust us. And so, you know, they it's not us again making the decision solely because we are the, oh, I'm the new behavior analyst and this is my job. Like we got to change that <laughs> dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I mean, we're a spoke in the wheel. I, that's like, I always go back to that. We are like a single, we are a single slice of the pie. And, Mm -hmm. and I, and I, it's, it's sad that behavior analysts like to think that they are otherwise like, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, that, that's something that drives me nuts is watching people go, well, I'm the behavior analyst. I know it's like, sure. Like we probably have a, we have a, I mean, we know we have a really powerful technology, but let's not pretend we're the only technology. I love that. And I was just talking about that this weekend at a conference with, a bunch of, you know, new BCVAs and how important collaboration is. And, you know, Tyra Sellers was speaking and she was talking about, um, you know, feedback and how important feedback is and, um, you know, leadership. And a ton of her research she pulled came from not behavior analysis. And she said that she's like, you know what, we have not done a good job in the research in a lot of these topics, but other fields have, and it's okay to, you know, lean on that research until we are able to do the work in our own research. Right, right. Go read John Maxwell. I mean, stuff's great. Mm-hmm. For anyone studying, that's external validity, seeing that it could <laughs> generalize. <laughs> generalize outside, right? We could take what we learn elsewhere and use it here. Yeah. 
So something I want to ask about, just because, you know, I'm someone, I will take opportunity anytime I get it. Like if I meet someone who's a dentist, like I will for sure, like find a tooth to ask about. If I, <laughs> sure. you know, if I meet a dermatologist, I'll ask them quickly, like, will you look at this spot on my arm? Oh, you're in construction. We were just talking to an OBGYN. And you were like talking about like very intimate sexual questions with her, like on a pre-podcast interview. First of all, those weren't sexual. Those were uh, well, women uh, health. I was trying to be nice. Anatomy. (laughs) Um. Anyways, yeah, I'm growing a dick out of my ass. Everyone, it's weird. Um. (laughs) All right. So okay. Anyways, just prefacing that I'm okay. So my brother got. I have a brother who is 26. For anyone who listens on the podcast, sorry if you've heard this story, you'll hear it again. So he's 26 years old. He goes to a day hab, and they they do, like they'll have like different tracks that they're on. Like, oh, right now you're in music, you're in this, you're in automobiles, whatever it is. And my brother is diagnosed with autism and an intellectual disability. I don't think it's autism, but that's besides the point. Okay, the point is that he like is on the same cognitive level as my two-year-old son. Like you, if I go to my parents' house, Kobe, my son, and Gal are like fighting over Gal's trucks. Like Gal's trucks that he's had since he was a child and doesn't play with. He does not want Kobe playing with them and he'll yell at Kobe, who's two. And then Kobe's petrified, you know, because Gal's sure. a 25-year-old man. Um, 26, whatever. Okay, so Gal has got in trouble. He, my parents got a call from this place that Gal... Um, that someone in the bathroom, another individual who attends this place, said that Gal tried touching them in the bathroom. And so Gal can no longer attend here. And before that, there was an incident that apparently at the lunch table, Gal, like, put his leg on a girl, uh, his foot on a girl's leg under the table. Okay? okay. They say he can no longer attend here. With it without, and so that like so the final conclusion they said, eventually, I was like, well, have you guys put any like sexual education, you know, programming in, you know, in terms of this, uh, whatever it is, or like we're not willing to let him come back. Then the only way, the only final thing that I could like get them is that they said only if he has a full time aid that you guys pay privately. Okay. Okay. Now. Speaking from like the family side point of view, he's kicked out of this place. He couldn't go for a few weeks. That's like my my parents' only respite, like at all, like when he's there. Right. Um, he's he can no longer attend unless he has someone. So, which also gets expensive when you're having someone there for the entire day. On sure. top of it, yeah. Okay? So, this person. Literally, they're having him sit outside the classroom just if Gal has to go to the bathroom in the day. So to me, pragmatically, I'm like, I'm like, why can't you send him to a single stall? Right. Like, like, isn't there a bathroom in there? Like, potentially that like is not a shared bathroom. Yeah. So like. They have done this entire thing as if he is, and I'm not saying it, I'm not defending that it's okay to like touch anyone or whatever it is, but the point is he can no longer attend this place. Then he had something that his aide that he had actually like was caught on video, like uh, they like caught it on that. He was like abusing my brother being like, 
you know you're an idiot. You know you're a real idiot because my brother always thinks he's sick. He has these like he'll be like allergies, can't walk, itchy. Like he always thinks he has bugs on him, whatever it is. Yeah. So they caught this video footage of this guy that my parents had found to work with him doing this. And so like obviously we got rid of the guy and my brother couldn't talk and communicate this to us, which is like a whole other like different level of terrible. So then Gal couldn't attend the place anymore. And I'm like, I have tried talking to them, but I'm like, in a case like this, is there, first of all, sexual behavior, like, like, what would you think to do on a case like this, first of all? Second of all, like, I understand places worried about their liability of something happening, but I'm also wondering, like, at what point is a place responsible? Like, you are a facility for adults with special needs. Like, an unconditioned reinforcer is sex. Mm-hmm. Right. And just so you're aware of like my brother's, um, he is like, you could probably like flick him over in terms of like his like stability, like when he's walking on his feet and stuff. So I'm saying like, it's not like he's going and like able to like make someone like perform sexual, like, I don't know, but that's just, what What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, uh, I have so so many thoughts on this. Uh, so I will say, I'm, I, the caveat I'm going to share about sexualized behavior in general is that I think it's important to understand that people will hypersexualize behaviors that are not inherently sexual. So you'll find that like something like the situation where he put his foot on somebody's leg is sexualized when it might not be sexualized. And so, or it might not be sexual in nature. It might've been just, that might, that might be a boundary issue. That might be an interpersonal space issue, but that, that not, is not necessarily a sexual issue. And so you, in the context of kind of the United States where anything and everything is like hyper-sexualized and, and made taboo, that culture informs so many places, including Anybody who's working with uh, developmental disabilities or intellectual delays, you're, you're going to find, uh, and I'm sure you've seen this, and we've all seen this, where people will uh, infantilize adult learners and pretend like like learners with disabilities don't have sex, they don't have sex lives, or anything like that. So on one hand, they'll ha- they'll just pretend like it's not even a thing, like oh, they don't need sex education because they don't have sex. And on the other side, you're going to find that any behavior that is remotely interpersonal becomes a sexual behavior. And so then people get hypersensitive and then for liability purposes or whatever, they go, Oh, we can't have anybody here. Uh, and then on top of that, their solution, the solution that you proposed doesn't actually contact any sort of motivation. doesn't do anything for that. Supervision is not like a motivation, like enhancer or changer, right? It doesn't, it doesn't manipulate that. So like, Oh, okay. All you've done is like put this person, if this is, let's say it is a sexual behavior and let's say that is the motivation, then you put that person in a deprivation state. Okay. So now I'm constantly supervised. So now you're making it more valuable by removing the opportunity for engaging in any sort of adaptive or appropriate behavior in that space. So that's usually like my first con, like my first like conversation around that is kind of going like teaching people what sexual behavior is, what sexuality is and understanding motivations behind that. Um, and also just informing them that they're not sex educators. So like, what are they doing? Like making decisions about sexuality when they have no, no experience around that or no expertise on that. So that's, that's usually where I start. And then if I'm working with somebody like that uh, in a situation that's, that's like that, you know, I'm obviously doing an assessment. I'm doing FBAs. There's research on all that. Um, usually some just basic skill training and stuff, but um, you know, that, that, that level of behavior that you're describing is, 
not nearly as severe as like what you might see in other spaces and other places and, and other folks that I've worked with. So I, I would start there. I mean, part of it is like providing educational resources to a place like this to say, hey, like you don't have a curriculum, you don't have anything to kind of teach around this. And supervision is not going to change his motivation. So like, that's my, I mean, the individual that he has working with him now, which I'm like so happy that this individual can have a job is actually like, um, an indiv- like a high functioning, I know, I don't know how we use that word anymore, but individual on the spectrum who's like so happy to have a job. And this is like the next person that we found. He doesn't go to this place. He's like, and so he's there and he's literally just sitting outside the class reading until Gal has to go to the bathroom. And I'm just like, again, I'm happy for this individual to have a job, but like on the case of like looking at this I mean, I'm just like, there's so many other things to me. First of all, I first found out their lunch period was an hour and a half, okay? My mm-hmm. brother, like, food is one of his, like, highest reinforcers. He could scarf down anything before you blink. So now right. he has an, an hour and a half, let's say an hour and 29 minutes <laughs> of time to just sit there. Like, that's just asking for, like, I mean, and they're not on cell phones. They're not on Game Boys. They're not on this. So, so it's like... What would we do in in an hour and twenty nine minutes? I'd be like, kicking the right. shit out of you under the table. <laughs> like, yeah. thing, like you know, worse than that. So, things like that. Just I'm like, like they looked at this. Let's say they did some kind of risk benefit analysis, and they're like, well, the risk of him acting on anyone else is so large that we're going to. And to me, I felt like I mean, I went and spoke to them, and I said, well is this fixing the, this is like a total bandaid. Like you have someone here just for him to go to the bathroom. But like, I guess, what are your thoughts in terms of like responsibility of a place on like having, if you're working with adults, like, and we understand that this is like, I I could assure that Gal's not going to be the last individual. They have any sort of like sexual behavior with. Right. So I, I, I get, I get, I get what you're saying. And I think I, one of the things I would say, and you could also tell me, you could say you're being a defensive sister. I don't know. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I think that's fair though. I think that what you're, I think that what you're defending is like, is, is his dignity and his right to community access and his right to services. Like, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think I like, absolutely. I'd be fighting for the same thing. So I think that that's a complete, a completely reasonable thing to fight for. Um, I think it's important to know, like, like, okay, I am the sister in this space, like, and that's going to inform maybe some different decisions. But I think to your question about like responsibility, and I, I want to go back to a comment you made, you said they probably did a risk benefit analysis to look at the risk of the liability of this particular behavior in this space. Um, so, so, and I think when, when people do that and like as a business, if you do that, you end up missing like all of the nuance that goes along with an actual risk benefit analysis. Like what they're doing is going, Oh, this is a risk to us. So we're going to reduce the risk to us instead of looking at how does this decision impact other clients? Like, if, if he's got friends at that place, then those people, those clients are going to lose him as a friend. Uh, how's this impacting the family? Well, this is putting a financial burden on the family. So now there's this extra thing that's happening to them. How does this impact X, Y, and Z? What if we, they do all these things and he still engages in this behavior? So there is the risk to other people. And so like the risk benefit analysis part of it, I think people go, this is scary. I don't like it. Instead of actually looking at those different elements, because I think that there is a responsibility of like, I'm serving this group. I'm serving this group of people, this population, and I'm only whenever something goes wrong, I'm only looking at how it impacts our organization. 
And they may be going, I'm trying to protect the other clients there. And sure, that is part of the yeah, no, overall I analysis. That. I, yeah, I understand that. And and yeah. I think that's a fair thing to consider in that. But I think that the, at the end of the day, they're missing, how does it impact Gaul? How does it impact the person that we're kicking out? How does it impact the family? They're missing those other elements that would inform or make a more comprehensive decision around that situation, or at least a more informed decision, because they can still go back and look at like, we don't have any sex ed training. We don't have any like services put in place to teach them appropriate boundaries. So their, or, argue, their thing for that is like, there's a lot of parents who don't want it. Like they don't want their kid having any, you know. Uh, yeah, but Ballon, Ballon in 2012, I mean, that article says that most parents, especially with people like parents of like children with a developmental disability, they want sex ed they want to talk about it they want to have those conversations they just don't know who should be responsible and when they should have those conversations so like there's studies that show otherwise and i think that's and and, and on top of that biology says otherwise too like just like like the the, the assumption that and, and, and there are plenty of parents that yeah sure they won't want that but those parents probably also need resources because they are neglecting to remember that their children are probably going to be sexual beings at some point in time too like there's so many things to unpack within it it's like such a big onion <laughs> like it's like it's like it's a right, truck there's full so of onions, many things you know? and, I, and i also think like i'm like you know i feel like like i guess to me i'm like all right so because like i've offered like okay so we got him like a behavior analyst on the side. I mean, I just don't think I'm the person to deal with my brother's sexual behaviors. I could like say it's just weird. Sorry. Well, what's that? What's what does Hanley say? Like, doesn't Hanley say like parents should be parents and not therapists? Like, isn't that like one of the things that he's like made a comment about? Like, I think that's completely fair. Like, I think as a as a sibling, I don't know that I would want to be my brother's therapist. Right, and it's just like it's still like my bro. Like, it's weird. Like, I'm like, okay, yeah, this. Wait, sure. He's Casey's very very sweet to offer to teach anything. But um, <laughs> like I got him. Don't worry. <laughs> but it's it's also like I just like it. I'm talking about that because I'm also like, what is the fade out plan? Are we addressing the function here? Like, okay, is this individual like antecedently? Are we providing him ways that he could, you know? And so that's what I'm working with. A BCBA who's. So there's a book. So I wrote a chapter in a in a book on teaching sexual sexuality education to uh, folks with autism. And that specific thing came up as like, what does a supervision fade plan look like? And ultimately what ended up happening was the amount of supervision that the learner had, had he, he had so much supervision for so long that his MO was just way too powerful. Like he was way too motivated and he ended up victimizing somebody that was never in his victimization profile. Like he, he ended up hurting somebody that was never historically. And this is, you're talking about 60 years, like was never in his history. And he ended up um, doing some pretty significant harm to somebody because he was just under supervision. And while we were doing the skills and while we were teaching, the motivation was still there. So, and he was, he was, he had, um, he was engaging in illegal behavior historically. So he had a motivation for some of those illegal behaviors, but that was the thing is like the supervision part of it was not the solution. It never, it never will be. Right. Because if they're like, I'm just like, if we're not addressing this antecedently to figure out like, okay, well, let's like give him some ways to like, you know, relieve himself or whatever it is on the side that it's like having this individual there. And there's also like no teaching skills coming into place. It's literally someone to walk you from the class to the bathroom. And I'm like, I could think of 10 other solutions in 10 seconds. Like, fine. He has designated bathroom time. You got to go now before class. Here's your time, you know, or right. like, uh, <laughs> here, go to the staff bathroom. That's a single stall. 
Okay. Right. Um, well, and, and to that point, though, I think that's the part where you that's and I think that's where like things like a risk benefit analysis comes together really nicely, where you can make an argument and lay all that out and be like, here, here's how like, you know, if you go this route, here's where you're going to end up getting somebody victimized. Here's how this is impacting everybody. But if you go this route and teach these skills, then you're going to reduce the liability for literally everybody and improve everybody's quality of life. Right. Tell me if I'm wrong. Are these like you are like you develop the alternative hypotheses and then you list out like different solutions? Yeah, like under the ideal model. Yeah, yeah. that's that's it. That's the the ideal ethical decision making model, um, mm-hmm. which comes from uh, I think Van de Creek and Nap or Nap and Van de Creek. Um, and that one specifically is like, okay, well, here it's 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 very much so. Um, uh, Bernard Gurin does this really well in how to rethink human behavior as well. It's uh, or Bernard Gurin. Uh, he corrected me when we interviewed him, and I keep I always call him Bernard, but he's Bernard Gurin, and. Um, <laughs> He talks about possibility training and you come up with every possible solution for a scenario. Like what are all the reasons, all the things of why somebody could do this, would do this, why they should do this. And let's break all this down and then be able to come up with some viable options. I mean, that stuff is just beautiful, but people don't want like once they have a solution, they're like, oh, that's fine. That works. It's like it's nice and simple. It's like, well, there's actually like a lot of things that we could do to fix this and, and, and make it like nice for everybody. Well, just being also that the ultimate goal for an individual, let's say like my brother, is to be in like, you know, one of like the Jewish group homes here. And it's like, yeah, if this is how they're dealing with it now with a full time supervisor in this place, like this is I I mean, to me, I'm like, this is essentially like fucking him over more for like a plan for independence in a group home. Yeah, it does. It does a disservice. I mean, and that's and that's but that's that's something you're going to see. And that's always the, the 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 thing that it's like important to kind of take a step back and go, is this person, this person's making the decision? Are they actually accounting for all of the things or are they making this decision selfishly? Like, are they making this decision because they're trying to cover their own ass or are they making this decision because they've actually thought out all of the things that could possibly fix or help or work in this in this situation and i think that's and that's another reason why i wanted to write that book is because there are so many times where it's like oh i can't deal with this okay we're gonna pass it to the next person and it's like actually you probably can if you take time to think about it and that's and that's you're absolutely right because those quick decisions without consideration for the people that we're serving without consideration for the person that we're working with absolutely fucks people over 100 percent yeah it's, it's frustrating. Yeah, it's frustrating. And and then I go back and then I go back to the Fryman stuff. I'm like, okay, we don't blame the learner. We blame their circumstances. We blame their learning history. But like, it's hard not to be emotional about that stuff because it is really frustrating, especially when you see somebody who deserves better not get what they need because somebody's making a selfish decision or not making a well thought out decision. I should say, like, like they're they're making it like it's just when you, you know, it's when you don't look at the details like or like the profile of the individual you know because like when you're like it's like and i again it's my brother so i sound like whatever it is but like i'm like (laughs) let's look at this kid's like ability to like even like like his physical like motor skills okay to like actually do anything on someone like he's like wobbling everywhere like i'm just like let's look at like how able this person is to like actually do something to someone. Let's look at like, sure. Like, have we addressed these other things? And just, it's like, look at the actual individual, like in their, you know, like just their, their ability to like lie or it's like my brother's level of innocence is like, it's like, go, did you eat the cake? I told you not to eat. No. Was it good? Yes. You know, it's like, <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, so it's like thinking of those kind of things of like, 
I mean, well, and and that's I think that goes back to that goes back to, and you're going to find this from just about anybody who works in sexuality is the stigma that goes along with sexual behavior always, always, always puts that person who is engaging in the behavior in a really tough position because whether they intend to or not, that behavior is so like culturally charged that people just go, oh, well, it's sexual, it's sexual behavior. I mean, like that's, I mean, like I, I live in Florida and, and, and literally drag queens and like gay couples are like specifically targeted as sexualized populations. And it's like, there's nothing to do with sex at like literally at all. Um, but like, the thing is, is like the United States is just very, 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 um, uh, like it's, it's very, I mean, people forget that the United States started not for religious freedom. They wanted to get away from <laughs> the, 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 from England because they wanted more restrictions. Like everybody's like, Oh yeah. Freedom of religion. It's like, no, they came here because their practices were too rigid and too conservative for England. And so they were like, we want to practice how we want to. If you go look up the history of Puritans, it didn't start because they were like free flowing hippies. <laughs> Dude, really i want shane to like explain to me daily like what's going on in the news in the world like, <laughs> like literally i think that you could actually do like the way you explain things and put it out there is like like it's like everything's like oh yeah that totally makes sense like i would never go sit and read about the puritans just because like i i'm not it's, as it's smart a whole as you thing. and it's cool yeah like, <laughs> i mean arguably it's not that interesting and it's kind of infuriating so um like i mean all you got to do is go visit the plymouth rock and realize how boring our actual history is it's a it's a rock on the beach <laughs> it's not even <laughs> a mountain. like it's not even a mountain or like a ridge or a valley it's a it's a fucking rock and everybody <laughs> is like tell you, that's how i feel about most historical sites like the alamo <laughs> yeah law the white house not that cool you know, I'm always yeah, like, it's not even the first White House. Boo. See, you know so much. I don't even know that. Boo. <laughs> All right. I want to wrap up with asking you, Shane. You recently did a pretty cool live um, CEU event with Snaba. Preferences aren't ethics. And I know it'll be probably available for a recording at some point, which is really cool. I went today to look, but it wasn't there yet. But can you talk about a little bit what that was about? Yeah. Um, so we, we talked about the idea that we have this ethics code and there are, and, and I'm sure that you all have seen it too, being in the field where people just adhere to it so rigidly that it becomes kind of dogmatic. And so what we try to talk about in that specific course was looking at understanding kind of like where ethics preferences come from, because ultimately that's what it is. And, and looking and really kind of like um, dismantling the code and understanding the philosophy behind the code, because there's so many times where somebody will go, that's unethical without any sort of thought or reasoning or any sort of kind of uh, critical thinking behind why they think something is unethical. And and I, I reference Pat Fryman's kind of circumstantial view. I reference uh, specifically Bernard Gurin's possibility training, but I always go back to tire sellers and, and thinking in the back of my head, the idea of compassionate curiosity. I mean, that, that, that phrase that she taught me has changed the entire way that I look at ethics in general. And so when somebody's doing something that appears unethical or feels unethical or feels icky, like it's really a matter of kind of having the, 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 the care enough to approach that person from a compassionate way and say, Hey, I, this looks concerning. Can we have a conversation about this? Here's why it looks concerning. And then also understanding that everybody's got a different learning history with ethics. I mean, coming up, like if you've trained under somebody who is rigidly like ethical, then you're going to probably never accept a cookie or a, 
a, a hand-drawn card from a client or anything, you know, even with the changes that have come up. But everybody's got a different learning history. Everybody's got different preferences. I mean, I tend to be a little bit more rigid about my supervision practices, but uh, everything else, I tend to be a little bit more flexible and kind of in stuff like that. So I think it really is just, it's a conversation around understanding that everybody has a different perspective, that our ethics code is made up of multiple philosophies of ethics, which I learned from Matt Broadhead and just having conversations versus accusing, because I, I personally, I'm real sick of the ethics police. <laughs> it's not helpful. Like that, yeah. that they, they never, never has the phrase that's unethical. I'm reporting you helped anybody. No. And you know, it just makes me remember just what I just saw Tyra. So it was very fresh on my head, but, um, even just in giving feedback, if you see like someone, you know, is billing, you know, you see a, so a session note and, you know, oh, the same name is repeated. And well, like, you know, be, instead of accusing and going to them in this, you know, tone of like, I know you were fraudulent and I know you were unethical. It's like maybe figure yeah. out the background story and understanding maybe, hey, there could be the supervisor that's training them. You know, that's how they taught them which is unfortunate and not okay. And then you work yeah. and address it through there. Or maybe other people are doing the same thing and you're just singling out one person and you haven't even done your due diligence to see if you're checking everyone else's notes before you yeah. come at somebody and like make them feel like absolute shit. So well, compassionate concern. I like that. Yeah. Compassion. Yeah. Compassionate concern, compassionate curiosity. I, I would recommend everybody taking a second to look into the philosophy of restorative justice, because I think if, if everybody did that, I think people would have a better understanding of like, uh, because it's basically like, essentially what happens is somebody does something unethical, they're deemed unethical and they live in this space where they're forever unethical and they never get an opportunity to kind of correct or move out of that. And there's no opportunity for feedback. It doesn't matter what they do. They're always going to be that person that did this wrong thing. And I think that there is, I think it's worth looking at the value of restorative justice in, in a, as just a general rule. Uh, because I think people will um, be a little bit more forgiving. Just be a kind human. All right, everyone out yeah. there. Do your risk really benefit nice. analyses and be a kind effing human. Yeah. Yeah. Nice and Shane, easy. I, I swear it is. You're amazing. And thank you so much. Hey, you guys, everyone um, listening, all of this stuff is going to be in the show notes. Um, and I highly suggest that you get this risk benefit analysis workbook. It's not something that is heavy, like a Cooper book that you <laughs> have to carry around. It is, you know, it's easy to just sit down user, and take user a friendly. Yeah. User friendly. Like user friendly, um, technological, you know, it, and it gives a lot of examples. So if you are drawing a blank of like, I don't know how to come up with my own example. That's the one thing that I suck at, you know, it leads <laughs> you through a few examples so that you're able to refer back to that. So you can, um, you know, do your own. You know, now. multiple exemplars, guys. You you know all about that with generalization, right? Yeah, That's yeah. the goal. Sure, sure. That's right. Repetition, replication. I love it. All right, Shane, thank you so much for taking time today. I yeah, know. Thank um, you. Time is valuable and we appreciate you. So thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me again. This is always so great. Thank you so much for coming. Your brain is awesome. I can't even imagine if my brain had one sliver of what yours had. I think yours has too many slivers. Mine? Yeah. But not in like connected subjects. Yeah, I know. It's like ziggy <laughs> His like like his is like, oh, it's this topic. I could talk this article, this article, this one. Mine's like my slivers are not <laughs> connected. But that's okay. It takes it takes all kinds. Yeah. We're working on it. We're working on it. 
All right, guys, it's time. You know where you can find us. You can find us on Instagram at Behavior Bitches Podcast, Facebook, Behavior Bitches Podcast, our website, BehaviorBitches.com, where you could also reach out to us and tell us what topics you'd like us to talk about. If you're a guest or you know a specific guest you want to come on, let us know. We're always looking. And as always, love ya. Mean it. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who helped us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him and he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. 